you that we can come and study your word together. We ask that you would uh, bless us and guide us as we study. We pray that you would help us to understand and apply these things to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. As we pointed out last time, the text starts with the word finally. And we said last time that that didn't necessarily mean that Paul was almost done. And I'm going to demonstrate that by spending a second week in the same text. So, anyway, um, my first joke of the morning failed. (laughs) But the second one worked. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians 4, and we will read the first 12 verses. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger, In all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. And so that's our text again for this morning. So we looked at this two weeks ago, and you may recall that um, we didn't get very far in the text. We, We pointed out that Paul was writing this with regard to the conduct of Christians who were members of the church. So he wasn't writing it to the outside world, he was writing it to church members, and that's demonstrated really uh, from the start, but looking at verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's talking about their progress, their growth in the Christian life, and so he's talking here to members of the church. And so we said that a couple of weeks ago, and that sort of took us on a, a bit of a detour to spend some time talking about the fact that in our culture, Christian understanding of sexual morality is different and growing increasingly different from the culture, from the beliefs of the culture around us. The Thessalonians faced the same thing. Nobody, basically nobody, um, in the culture surrounding them believed what the church believed. Uh, That was true in Thessalonica, it was true across the Roman Empire, Um, and in our own culture it's increasingly true today. The Christian understanding of sexual morality is that sex is between a man and a woman um, who are committed to one another in marriage. Um, That's not the view of the culture outside the church. Really there are only two limitations on sexual conduct in the culture around us. One is the limitation of consent, which is very important, which not only implies consent in terms of not being a a rape or a sexual assault, 
but also consent in terms of power structure. So employer-employee, um, professor-student, all those sorts of things. So consent is very important in our culture. And then our culture also uh, retains a belief that there should not be cheating of uh, any sort involved. So if you're betraying the trust of another person that you are committed to, whether married or otherwise, then, um, then that is, uh, continues to be deemed inappropriate. But outside of those two broad standards, those are the only standards um, that really the larger culture around us adheres to. The idea of marriage or of uh, heterosexual commitments, those are not um, important in our culture. And increasingly, if you insist on those standards, you'll be um, deemed to be narrow-minded, a prude, or a bigot. So um, Christians need to be aware of the culture that surrounds us. And it's in the midst of that culture, that kind of culture, that the Thessalonians were called upon to be faithful. And it's in that culture, that kind of culture, that we are called upon to be faithful to um, what God has to say about these things. And faithfulness in, um, in this regard requires two things. First of all, it requires correct belief and teaching by the church. And then second, it requires correct behavior by Christians. And those are two separate things that go together, but each of them needs to be thought of uh, both separately and together. So obviously, if the church is not teaching correctly, that puts everyone at a disadvantage, right? Because if you don't have the correct teaching in the first place, then you're um, less likely to behave appropriately. And so belief precedes behavior. Um, and so it's necessary that in a culture that surrounds us that does not believe biblical understandings, Christian understandings, universal understandings of, of, Christi- of uh, morality, sexual morality, it's important that the church retain uh, correct teaching. And we're in our day we are seeing increasingly that the culture is rubbing off on the churches, and so we are seeing churches that are starting to sway. Um, and and um, you know, in the past, it was churches that are deemed liberal churches that were um, start that that have gone outside of uh, biblical authority and have taken on other views. But increasingly, over the last uh, several years, we are seeing uh, evangelical churches that are moving away from the biblical standard. And so um, if that continues, then those of us, those churches that continue to adhere to the biblical standard, will find ourselves marginalized, um, not only by the outside world, but by much of the Christian community. And so it's something that that we may have to face in the decades ahead. I had a question because I had a related conversation about this in the past two weeks um, with a girl in one of my classes. She is a Lutheran. Um, and so I was like, oh, yay! Nah, I wasn't, shouldn't have been that excited. Um, I was like, oh, yay, someone else, and not so much because it became kind of what you're saying because I was talking to her about, we started talking about this conversation, sexuality, and she told me that she had a sister that was gay, that she had gone to her pastor, and that the pastor had said, basically, 
this is how God made you, and therefore there is nothing wrong with it. And I just kind of, I didn't want this to devolve into a huge argument because I knew fighting with her on it right then and there was not going to get anywhere, and also it just wasn't, wouldn't have been productive or anything. But, and also I didn't really know what on earth you say that because yes, God did create us, and he does allow certain flaws, I don't know, like issues with us. But what's the line between, well, he made you that way, and that's a result of sin, and though he allowed that, you know, what do you do with that, basically? Well, it, it partly depends on where um, um, where this minister's coming from. Let, let me try to answer the question kind of broadly. That with, with Lutherans, as with Presbyterians, there are different denominations that have different levels of adherence to scripture. And all of this began 100 to 150 years ago. But um, trying to think of the best way to do this. So among, among Lutherans, if the, the, the largest Lutheran denomination is the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which in spite of the, um, this is on tape, isn't it? In spite of the, um, in spite of the word evangelical, um, they by and large reject the authority of scripture. And so uh, the Bible is a nice book that um, gives us some good ideas and we learn about the religious history of Israel, but it's outdated for our day. So, um, so those Lutherans would be comparable to the PCUSA in a Presbyterian context. There are other Lutheran denominations that are more conservative, that adhere more to the Bible, including the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the Lutheran, uh, the Wisconsin Synod of Lutheran Church. And so if you go to those, you'll find that their teaching tends to be more along the lines in a Lutheran context of what the OPC and the PCA and the um, ARP believe in a Presbyterian context. I don't know if that's helpful at all, but it's a liberal conservative divide in in these denominations. If you reject biblical authority, uh, it's kind of interesting that if you go back nearly 100 years ago, those that were rejecting biblical authority said, well, by not holding to inerrancy and all of that, we can at least keep a biblical ethic. But starting in the 60s, the biblical ethic started breaking down severely. And that um, showed itself first and foremost in terms of sexual ethics. I which, what I say to her when someone says, or just in general about like someone who's homosexual, there is belief that these the people who are, there's some of that, they truly are born with that predisposition, which is unfortunate. Um, and so, in essence, you are born that way, but how do you distinguish between you are born that way in sin and how God created you specifically as a person? Because there are certain characteristics he gives us that other people may be like, yeah, you shouldn't be that way. It's like, but God created me this way for a purpose. Like, how, how do you get those two apart? Right. Well, it's probably a long conversation, and I will, let me answer in a couple of ways. I'll, I'll point you um, as a guide to the book that I referenced um, a couple of weeks ago, the Rosaria Butterfield book, um, Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. And she, 
she talks about how a uh, pastor, um, over a long series of conversations taking years, um, evangelized her, and she eventually came to faith in Christ. So, um, you know, if, if somebody, I mean, sometimes we want our evangelism to be a single presentation and, you know, they make a decision. And sometimes that can happen. Some of us may have been converted that way. I'm thankful. We should be thankful every time that happens. But sometimes, often, that's not the way conversions take place. It's, it's long-term conversations. Uh, Ms. Butterfield says that, you know, it's interesting. She says that um, she hears Christians talking about others struggling with their sins. And she says, I didn't struggle with my sins. She says, I liked the life I had. It was pleasant. I had good friends and good companions, and, and I liked my life. But she says that she was ultimately, through these casual conversations with a respectful minister, she was confronted with the Lordship of Christ. And even though she says she found her life enjoyable, she realized that Christ was Lord and that that had to, that, and that she had to react to that. And so it's, um, it may be long-term conversations. Now, in terms of did God create people this way, I think that, and others may have different thoughts, I think Christians have mismanaged that conversation um, over the years. And the way that we've mismanaged it is that we have failed to understand, or I say we, I, maybe you understood it perfectly well. But many Christians have misunderstood what um, human nature is after the fall. And so, um, you know, we are not as God created Adam and Eve. We are fallen people. And because of that, we are born um, with um, distinguishing characteristics with what a biologist might call DNA, but with we are born with uh, proclivities, desires, each one of us different, that put us in a place where by nature we are hostile toward God. And that might look different to different ones of us because we all have different personalities some of our personalities are developed as um, um, because of our environments. Um, some aspects of our personality are developed um, by virtue of the proclivities that are biological, and so that's a that's a mixture. And um, and and so we are born with some characteristics that might. Um, uh, I completely lost you, didn't I? <laughs> it's all right. It was a good place to lose you. But there are there are many many Christian men that fight the urges, right? And and just don't get into that. That doesn't make you a non-believer. Yeah. yeah, that's the difference. There's the temptation, but there's the basically you saying because you were born with this temptation, therefore you're okay. I'm like that's. I know that's not true, but I don't know how to explain it. Right. Well, ultimately, the lordship of Christ is what comes to bear because um, Christ is Christ is Lord of every aspect of our lives, and He's also Lord of those who are unbelievers. But again, that's probably a lengthy conversation about who God is, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That if 
as is true with many in our culture, if God is inside you in such a way, if you're spiritual but not religious, and God is inside you in such a way that the God that you believe in is an extension of your psyche and is there to make you happy, then it's going to then you have to have a different understanding of God before you understand the nature of this sin. And so that's that's one of the things that we're facing in our world. It's it's not just that people disagree with um, the moral vision of the Bible. They don't they disagree with who God is. And so the the conversation is much more foundational than um, than what we give it credit for, and and that's that's one of the reasons that frankly um, we've lost the argument. And the danger is not only that we've lost the argument with our culture, but we could be losing um, the argument with our own children if we don't get smarter about it. So, John, to put it in a nutshell and apply it to Addie's question, <clears throat> excuse me. Basically, what you're saying is get familiar with the doctrine of original sin and human depravity and in order to begin to understand the flaws and the thinking that leads one to believe God made me this way, therefore it's okay. Very true, you know, yes. That's, that's what's going to undermine that fallacious line of reasoning. So study upon original sin is my, my advice. Understand who God is and because of who God is, what the nature of sin is. Yeah. Well, if evangelism is your, is your purpose, and you have the ability, I wouldn't go that direction. I wouldn't make that the jumping off point. Because, I mean, the gospel is what's going to change hearts, not their view on homosexuality or whatever else. And, and that will come, and you will, you will be able to have that conversation, but that's not, the place. That's not going to change lives. And that's very true, too, that, that, um, that you not only have to give people law, um, and the law more brought... I think one of the mistakes that Christians make is that we we give we can give the impression to our culture that the only sins that we care about are sexual sins. Now we talked about the other kind of divides between liberals and conservatives. There are other kinds of divides where the liberals partly get it right, and I I'm on tape, aren't I? Um, so when when you think about how liberal Christians and conservative Christians talk to the larger culture. Sometimes the only sins that conservative Christians talk about are the sexual ones. The liberal Christians never talk about sexual sins. The only <laughs> sins they talk about are social sins. Um, prejudice and bigotry, um, um, sins against the environment, um, you know, a, a whole uh, array of, um, uh, of economic injustice. cultural issues. Yeah. Not just economic, but... Yeah, but poverty, things such as that. Um, both groups have a view of sin that is too constricted, that fails to make use of the entire moral law. And I think that um, both liberals and conservatives, um, in a doctrinal sense, I'm not really wanting to talk politics, but in a doctrinal sense, we really would benefit if we if we thought of our pet causes or the things that we talk about the most in terms of the entire moral law. Isn't it interesting here 
that Paul here talks in, I've read these two texts together, not only because I want to deal with them both this week, but, um, but also because isn't it interesting that two, the two things he talks about side by side, sexual immorality and being an idle busybody. One of those, many Christians would say that's the most important thing in the world, and others, well, you know, if somebody's guilty of that, no big deal. But Paul deals with them side by side here because he's thinking of God's moral law as a unit and we're accountable to all of it. And I, I think that that's, um, that that's a way that we sometimes fall short in, in the way that we think about it with our own lives and in the way we teach others, Wayne. You know, I was just thinking about some of the things for Addie. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, one thing you might want to have them take off, and, and really for you to be able to get involved in it, is really look back to Scripture. Especially starting, I, I would say, first chapter of Romans. Uh, 18 and on through, through the second chapter, they know their own conscience. You know, it, it's amazing what people can rationalize away, and and that's what they're doing. <coughs> it justifies that they do the desires of their heart. It's like it says in James. Uh, you know, some people say, "Yeah, you have free will. You have free will to sin all you want." And and this is what. What I think Paul is getting to when he talks about basically what we call natural revelation in the first chapter, the idea that you they know. Uh, they just don't care. Or they they want to so live. desperately want it to be okay that they will figure out a way to make yeah, it okay. They'll rationalize whatever. But through that first chapter <laughs> and on into the second chapter, you, you see when he says, I gave them up to these body things. He didn't choose it. He just, or that God made you, he just <coughs> gave up. He, he allowed this to happen. And that, those are helpful thoughts. The other thing that I'll add, and then I'd like to move on unless we need to continue, continue talking about this. But um, the other thing I'll add is something that's, while we're trying to um, teach people properly about the nat- who God is and the nature of sin and uh, God's offer of the gospel, um, the other thing that we should do is just love people and make sure that they know that we care for them. They're not, and this is where sometimes the political rhetoric is really harmful to the to the cause of Christ. When you see terminology that suggests your enemies who are a threat to our civilization, oh, God loves you and I want to tell you about that. <laughs> um, for the church, the gospel and the spread of the gospel has to be primary. And so um, that's not to say that there are not political positions that can or should be taken. Uh, that's a different conversation. But we ought to make sure that um, our individual politics um, don't, um, don't preclude our ability to share the gospel with others. Because that's the means by which lives truly are changed. And we ought to love people. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the context in which the Thessalonians lift this out. And it's the context in which we live it out. So in verse 3, For this is the will of God, not something that's optional. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now Paul here uses the word sanctification. So when the average person talks about sanctification, 
that's an inside joke with my wife. When, when we were dating, we visited a church and the pastor's, pastor made the statement, when the average person talks about sanctification, I leaned over to Lynette and I said, average people don't talk about sanctification. <laughs> but what is sanctification? That sounds like a catechism question, doesn't it? Anybody want to give your, uh, memorized it? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live under righteousness. So that's what sanctification is. Um, there are several things that you can notice from that definition. Um, sanctification is a process. And so that it differs from justification. Justification is a one-time, once-and-for-all declaration by God that uh, he has pardoned our sins and declared us to be righteous. And so justification is a once-and-for-all thing. Sanctification is rooted in our justification, but it's an ongoing process of our uh, growth in the Christian life. There's a sense in which we don't participate at all in our justification. All we do is receive it, right? Um, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There you see the once and for all nature of it. Having been justified by faith, that's from Romans 5.1. So um, it's a once and for all thing that's received by faith. We don't participate in it. We just receive it. Sanctification, on the other hand, is something that, in a sense, we participate in by making use of the means of grace, um, such as preaching, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, um, prayer, and so forth. Um, So we participate. And yet, sanctification is a work of God's free grace. So even though we participate in the things that he's given us, We shouldn't have the idea that we sanctify ourselves by doing these things. It's rather that God uses these things in our sanctification. So in this life, sanctification is always partial and incomplete, although we should, as Christians, be progressing. Um, But we'll find, I think, um, that when we, the very best of us, that when we uh, enter um, our final state, that we have made far less progress than we thought, and our glorified state will be very different um, from our final state in this life. Um, But nonetheless, um, sanctification is something that should be happening in the life of every Christian. If you are not growing in grace, um, it would be wise to ask um, why that is the case. Um, And and Paul here says that sexual... um, that abstaining from sexual immorality is essential to our growth in uh, sanctification. Now, it it is interesting here that in talking about this, Paul doesn't seem to be talking about anything that in particular that has happened in Thessalonica. Now, this is different from the following sin that I mentioned that he talks about, that of um, idleness and being busybodies. Um, That he talks about with a certain degree of specificity and repeatedly. He addresses it beginning with verse 9. He mentions it again in chapter 5 and verse 14. And then again in 2 Thessalonians, he has an extended discussion of idleness in chapter 3 and verse 6. 
And so there seem to be some specific things he has in mind about idleness, things that were happening in the church. And we probably have some pretty good guesses as to what those things were. It's probably not an accident that Paul talks about idleness just before, in verse 13, he starts talking about the second coming. And it appears likely that there were some people within the church that said, Christ is coming back, and the people in the church are generous, they will take care of me, so I don't want to be doing this work that, you know, takes away from my good time. I, you know, I'll just lay back, wait for Christ to return, which is going to happen soon. And if it's not as soon as I think it is and I run out of money, then the people in the church will take care of me. And so that seems to have been the attitude that some uh, were having in the church. And so um, Paul admonishes that uh, beginning with verse 9. But unlike the, the idleness, it seems that sexual immorality that Paul addresses here is not something that Um, he's aware of a specific situation. He was aware of specifics with regard to the idleness. With this, it seems more general. Um, And and so it might be asked, well, why would Paul give general instruction when he's not aware of any specific sin? And I want to mention several reasons that he would have taken the time to do this. Um, First of all, because he's aware of the power of sexual temptation. And so he would not have uh, wanted... Uh, he would have wa- not have wanted to neglect this because he was aware that church members um, could be uh, tempted by this. Um, second, because the, of the prevalence of opportunity for sin. Um, and those first two together are important because they speak of an internal temptation and an external temptation, which is exactly the sort of thing um, that we face um, in our lives and in our culture together, both internal and external. Um, third, uh, because of, the, op- of, of the, pa- uh, the opposition of pagan culture to the biblical understanding of sexual sin. And then number four, because of the damage that, have, that, are, that is caused by these sins. And so um, at, at every level of life, um, failure in this regard uh, does tremendous damage to the individual life. Paul has already said that it's essential to sanctification. Uh, there's damage. Uh, to family, um, there's damage because of this sort of sin, um, heartache and hurt, um, the, to a church that is scandalized by it, there is, is tremendous damage, and we all know of stories of churches that have been um, harmed sometimes horribly um, by these uh, types of sins, particularly if it involves a leader, and then... Um, uh, and, and then by, fam- by friends and family and others. Um, and again, Paul um, says that, um, that, we, uh, that if we disregard this, we're not disregarding just man, but God himself who gives his Holy Spirit. And so um, there is tremendous damage that is done um, when people um, falter in, when Christians falter into this kind of sin. And so for all of these reasons... Um, it's um, Paul has given this instruction. Now, it's important, as Paul does here, um, to address, and, and let's look at how he does address. So he says, For you know what instructions we gave you, 
This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then how are, how are you to abstain? That you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he gives a series of instructions. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So the issue of self-control. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that requires an awareness of the internal passions. And then third, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And so that we regard the social consequences as well. But notice that Paul addresses both the external and the internal. One of the mistakes that I think that we sometimes have made with our kids and grandkids, maybe ourselves when we were growing up, is there's, it's easier to address the external and to neglect the internal. And so, um, and, and I m- mentioned kids, but this is true with adults too. Um, we need an awareness of our own lusts and temptations, which, by the way, might not start out as, um, as um, sexual in uh, nature. They might start out in terms of an emotional need, um, uh, various kinds of neglect. Um, there, there are lots of reasons that people uh, find this sort of um, um, uh, behavior or uh, falter into this direction because it's alluring. And we need to be honest and aware of it. People want hard and fast rules. I grew up in uh, a fundamentalist church that had lots of hard and fast rules about the the kinds of entertainment that you could engage in and that sort of thing. And um, that works for some people. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But um, for some, as soon as they can escape the rules, um, they're worse than than the kids that were raised more loosely. Um, Because the the externals have been addressed, but the, the condition of the heart has not been addressed. And so it's important to address the internal and not the external. Once we address the internal, we might find that there are things that are okay for somebody else externally, but they're not okay for me. And so people want the the hard and fast rules. Sometimes they're not hard and fast. And let me move outside the realm of sexuality to give an example. Um, I'm 56 years old, neither as a teenager or a young man or an older man. I've never been drunk in my life. Somebody says, you're a braggart. Get somebody that's qualified to teach up here that's more humble. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that if it were bragging. That, for me, required no effort. Because I don't like the taste of alcohol. I mean, I, um, I don't like bitter tastes, and most alcohol is bitter. So I, you know... Now I don't drink at all because of medications I take, but in the past I would have a glass of wine because I was at a business meeting and everybody else was drinking a glass of wine, and so you fit in. But to drink more than one, is it, it would be like drinking medicine for me. I just don't like it. And so is, is, um, beca- is becoming intoxicated contrary to Scripture, is that a temptation I have to deal with? No. I mean, you could put me for a weekend by myself with all the bottles at a bar, and they would all still be there when you came to pick me up on Monday. I mean, it's no... Now, I don't believe that the, I don't believe that the Bible requires uh, someone to be a teetotaler. 
But for some people, it's best to be a teetotaler, right? Because they have, uh, in their personal history, uh, a problem with alcohol and uh, controlling it. And so for them, even though the Bible doesn't mandate that we all be teetotalers, for some people, it's best just to abstain. So what is true with regard to alcohol, I think, is, rega- is also true with regard to um, types of entertainment and situations that we put ourselves in. So we, we can agree that for everybody, for 100% of people, for 100% of Christians, certainly, pornography is off limits, Right? But then when you move away from that and move into some areas that people want, well, can I go to this movie or not and all that? I think that those kinds of decisions require honest self-examination of the heart. Is this something that creates temptation for me? Can I, um, as a matter of business, go to lunch with this person or not? Can I watch this sort of movie? Can I... You know, all these questions that are practical for our personal lives, um, you know, we, it requires honesty. And sometimes honesty is harder than hard and fast rules. But that's what's, um, that's what's necessary, I think, um, for us to apply this as Christians, to make sure that we are honest about what's in here and then make decisions about what we do about our behavior that makes sure that we don't falter uh, into temptations. There are some people in the church, in church leadership, not our church, there are some people in church leadership that have fallen into scandal because they're predators. And um, those are people that need to be beware of and um, dealt with. Um, But there are some that need to be dealt with in a different way. They're not predators. They're people that ignored the warnings and fell into sin. And uh, church discipline and so forth is necessary for those folks as well. But, it, but it, it's, a, it's, you know, how much better if we get the warnings out and, um, and the kind of advice that Paul gives here so that there is both uh, attention to the externals and also attention to the condition of the heart so that um, we avoid sin rather than falling um, into it. Um, Paul here uh, doesn't say so here, but it's something else that we ought to keep in mind in the context. And that is that Christians fall into sin. And I mentioned that sometimes there might be the need for discipline by the church. But we ought to remember as well the, um, one of the purposes for church discipline. And, and the reminder from Galatians 6.1, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so there's both there a warning about temptation, but also a reminder to the church that when folks fall into sin, the point is not just to point out the sin and condemn, but um, the point is to seek repentance and restoration to the fellowship of the body. Because these are kinds of sins that Christians are guilty of sometimes. And there is, thankfully, forgiveness um, in Christ for the guilty. And so um, that's what Paul has to say here. Thoughts, questions, comments? Julie? You know what, and you, you mentioned this at the beginning, but I think what really struck me as you talked through the, the book 
tokens of this conversation about sexual morality are God's standards. And, and still thinking about that idea of the culture, we're drawn, we, we want to redeem the culture to let the culture be the standard, which changes with the passage of time. But God's standard never changes. And that is, that is why it's so important that we do submit to faithful teaching. Because, if, because that, that is what sets up is it okay to be in a room with a bunch of bottles of alcohol or not? Is because you are submitting to God, to the authority of God's standard and what he said. Very true. Other thoughts? Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about idleness just so I can say we covered it. And Next week we'll move to less controversial topics like the so-called rapture of the church. So anyway, I picked this book, didn't I? <clears throat> so as I mentioned, um, they, there seemed to be a very real problem with idleness in the church. And it may very well have, um, have originated with this um, interest in the doctrine of the second coming. Christ is coming back, and so um, therefore I don't need to uh, be diligent in work. Uh, it's interesting that he emphasizes here, not only are they to stop being idle, but they are to mind their own business and not that of others. Don't those two things tend to go together? If we're not minding our own business, we tend to be minding um, somebody else's. And it, it, you know, it's sadly true that as Christians, um, we all too frequently don't take things such as gossip, which go along with being a busybody, um, we don't take those seriously as sins. And they are serious sins that harm people. Gossip or being a busybody can take a couple of different forms. The one that we tend to notice is that it takes the form of um, saying things about other people that aren't true. That's the easy one to point out, right? Although you find, don't you find it on social media all the time? Um, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I made too many enemies there. But um, one of the ways I made enemies was when a friend posted something that was incorrect, I would go find the source that proved that it was incorrect, and I'd um, suggest that they take it down. People don't like that. <laughs> but you know what's sad? And th- this, is, this is true. Frequently, if I um, said to one of my friends that's not a Christian, that's incorrect, here's the Snopes article or whatever, and, and showing that it's not correct, frequently the non-Christian would say, oh, thank you, and they'd remove it, or they'd correct it in a comment. You know who was really, who'd really get, their, get up in arms if you corrected them? It's my Christian friends. Who, uh, I don't know. But anyway, it, it's sad. So gossip where we're sharing things about others that's not correct, is obviously a sin of being a busybody. But sometimes gossip can be true, but it's still gossip, and it's not information that should be shared. I mean, if, if we're sharing information with the intention, either the direct intention of harming somebody else, or an indifference, about the impact of this information sharing on somebody else. Um, If it's not out of Christian love, but out of um, the enjoyment of saying, hey, I know something, do you know? Then that's a sin to be repented of, and it's a serious sin 
um, the, uh, against the body if it's others within the body of Christ, or it's a serious sin in front of our culture um, if um, it's uh, not necessarily involving other Christians, but it's just um, wickedly sharing information that doesn't need to be shared. Um, And that's very true. I mean, as as we talk through these things, I mean, it's like me with the alcohol. You know, let the preacher talk about alcoholism all day long because I don't have to worry about that. I like those sermons. Um, but um, if he talks about something else, you know, then he quit preaching and went to meddling, right? So, um, so yeah, all of this will hit different ones of us in different ways. One of the myths is that women gossip and men don't. Yeah, not true. Um, and uh, we can we can all be guilty of any of these sins, um, and and whether we're talking about the sexual uh, immorality or the gossiping, um, sometimes the stereotypes prevent us from seeing our our own sins, and so we ought to be careful to think about these things individually um, instead of in terms of the stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing um, I would have an issue with as far as the gossip is sometimes you know things get kind of buried or hidden because you have leaders that don't gossip but there may actually be you know an issue where something needs to be brought up to the general you know because it involves maybe a danger either spiritually or physically well and the issue is actual need so am i sharing this because there is an actual need or am i or am i sharing it because I'm enjoying saying I know something about somebody that you don't know. So it's, you know, like the other things we talked about, it's a matter of honestly examining our own hearts and making sure that we're sharing it for the right reason. Uh, I mean, to your point, um, in my work, I deal with um, issues related to drug addiction. And so, um, especially prescription drug addiction. And one, uh, this has been an issue I've worked on for 15 years, but most people have not become aware of it until the last three or four, even though it affects nearly every family and community in America. But what happened for so long is nobody wanted to admit that their family member was ad- addicted to oxycodone. They wanted, so they, they hid it, you know. And, and so sometimes sharing personal information or, or knowing what's going on is helpful. But again... Um, We've got to be honest with ourselves. If if I say, hey, do you know that Harry's niece was in jail because she was an oxycodone addict, which is a true story, actually, I'm sad to say. But um, does, is, is somebody sharing that because they are concerned about me and my niece? Or are they sharing that because you hear about that? Um, so, I mean, we have to be honest. We have to be honest with ourselves. Well, we should stop. I'm way over time. The bells are strong, though, so maybe I'm not over time. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the conversation that has, um, has gone along the lines of um, each of us struggles with different things, and we pray that you would help us um, 
with the guidance of your Holy Spirit to be um, to be aware of the sins that beset us and to seek your guidance and help that um, that we would grow in our sanctification that sin would have less of a foothold in our lives. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are a forgiving and loving Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, sir. Thank you.